0: So, I'm going to pray, then I'll introduce Stephen. So, loving God, we ask that you bless us tonight with your presence and Spirit of God lead us into truth. Fire our imaginations, help us to think, help us to connect. Amen. Amen. So, Stephen is what happens when you're a Canadian. He goes... Comes over to the UK for an adventure at the age of 19. Gets a job in a bookshop. Uses his employee discount to um, read through some classics. Including a Kierkegaard book, which diverted his life plans from studying literature to going for philosophy and theology. And the rest is history. A couple of degrees later, Montreal... McGill, Oxford University, all of this sort of impressive stuff. And, uh, and now Worcester, the highlight of his career. Um, so we're, we're just so pleased to, to share this moment with you. And um, over to you.
1: You've done your research. I feel, I feel a little bit... How did you know all that stuff? Um, oh, there's a weird echo. What am I doing wrong? Is that, you? Is that a weird echo because of that? All well, right. Well, thank you. It's really nice to be here. Um, as Aaron said, this accent is what you sound like if you've moved to England when you were 19 and basically never left. So I've been here for 21 years. Um, yeah, and as he said, I, so I found myself living as a foreigner. I came from Canada, and I was this young guy, and I was living in a strange country, and I'd grown up in Bible Belt, Canada. I grew up amongst the kind of people that wished they could move to America so they could vote for the Republicans, okay? (laughs) There are Canadians who wished they were Americans so they could be right-wingers, right? So I grew up in that world which really closely identified. It's Christianity with a certain type of politics, a certain type of patriotism and stuff.
2: And then I moved
1: to this country, (coughs) and I found that the maps didn't work quite the same way. I couldn't go into a a congregation and assume right away that I knew what their politics were or what they thought about various subjects and and things. And so I found myself quite uh, unsettled. Um, That it wasn't that I was this kind of hardcore right-wing, gun-loving patriot or anything like that, but I just so associated Christianity with that type of world. You all know what I'm talking about, right? I so associated Christianity with that, that when I moved to this country, it just it, I, I had to do a lot of thinking, like what is it that I really, you know, if, am I rejecting Christianity or am I rejecting just a certain way of that I've noticed people being Christian? Um, I so associated being uh, a Christian with my culture that I was grew up in and born into, and so I came to this country and things unsettled me a bit because I couldn't quite make all those same connections. But I also found a group of people who also associated their Christianity with their nationality, right? Are you a Christian? Well, of course I'm English. Of course I'm a Christian, right? Uh, Especially in Church of England, the national, the oldest church, you know, people have been worshipping here since before this nation was English, right? And uh, and so Christianity is so deep in the culture, right? So here I was, being this 19, 20-year-old living in, the UK trying to sort out what I thought about things, and I was working in a bookshop in Waterstones, and I was working my way through a list of my discount, my employee discount, and I was just going through the list of, like, world's classics, the kind of big, long names, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and stuff, names that you've heard but never really read, and I read Kierkegaard. Has anybody ever heard of Kierkegaard? Just a show of hands. Has anyone ever read any Kierkegaard? Okay. What have you read? Those who have read it, just to... What books have you read of his, or? Faith, it faith and, uh, fear and Trembling. Fear and Trembling. That's often one, and that was the first one I read as well. He, I will talk about it in a bit. There's a book called Fear and Trembling. He wrote books, Fear and Trembling, Concept of Anxiety, um, Sickness Unto Death. Like this, is, this is a miserable-looking guy. He's like, he's like Leonard Cohen. It's like philosophy for Leonard Cohen fans, which I am one as well. And so here I was, which is really attracted to this kind of deep, dark stuff. And I read this book, and it was like it was like I had vertigo. It was like the, the, the bottom of my world dropped out. It was a really fascinating experience because we'll get to him in a bit. But here was a Christian writing about how, what a bad idea Christian culture was. So for Christian reasons, he was attacking Christendom he was separating, he was deliberately going for people who confused their nationality with their Christianity. Which was exactly what I was wrestling with. So I just found in Kierkegaard, he just started to give me a language for something I'd already been starting to notice. So, as a result, when I decided to go to university, I was like, well, I was going to study, actually I was going to study Celtic history. I was going to be an archaeologist. Who's the archaeologist? We've got an archaeologist here in the crowd. I was going to study Celtic history and language, but I changed. I changed to study philosophy and theology because I decided I want to study more Kierkegaard if I get a choice. We'll talk about him in a bit. But one of the things that happened was as I studied Kierkegaard and went through the system of the university system, I became more interested in the politics of it. So if you're looking at the relationship of Christianity to Christendom and the relationship of Christians to their nationality and their nation, you have to start looking at where a nation came from or what nationality is. And as you start doing that, you start paying attention to politics and history. So I became a political theologian. And I started to look at what is the relationship of Christianity to the social, economic, and political framework in which we all live. And I don't mean who to vote for every five years. But I do mean, by politics, that what is our agreed, often unanalyzed, unexpressed, Uh, ideas and beliefs that we all have in common that we don't really talk about very much or what are some of the most powerful forces that motivate human beings to act and those are the kind of things when we talk about politics small p politics maybe so I started doing that and I taught political theology for 10 years or so And, um, and as I was teaching political theology I started to care less and less about modern day politics and nationality, and I started going back into history, and I was like, so what did the, what did previous Christians think about these things? Uh, What did previous Christians to that think about these things? And I ended up at the New Testament. So I started with Kierkegaard, (laughs) then started doing political theology, and now, 10 years later, I'm now finally a Christian who's discovered the Bible. you will be happy to hear. And I started to really pay attention, how does the New Testament, what did it feel like politically to be around Jesus? Uh, what did the earliest Christians, how did they think about allegiance to their nation? Or how did they think about government? And what did they think it meant when they said Jesus is king? You know, they start to notice that the earliest Christians, it's, it, it's imp- we have this idea that Christianity and politics never shouldn't, shouldn't combine, or that you, private faith has no impact on your public life and that kind of, we have this idea. But the evidence is that the earliest Christians, the people who knew Jesus, or who knew the people who knew Jesus. When they came to writing what it meant to be a Christian for them, they didn't draw from the shelf of religious words. They went into the shelf of politics. And they said, oh, to to be around Jesus, it meant to be around a king, it meant we're members of a kingdom, it meant we're citizens of a different tribe, right? All their language they used was basically political. So that really interested me, and then they started to reimagine um, family relationships, tribal relationships, economic relationships, relationships to violence and war. Like, just they reimagined themselves in some really interesting ways. So, what I first want to do is look at, before we talk about Kierkegaard, I wanted to look at basically the, one of the earliest records we have of, of what it felt like to be around Jesus. Now, Um, you know that I'm not going to assume, I don't know who's in this crowd, so I'm not assuming that you're all Christians, but I am also going to assume that even people who are Christians in this room don't always realize that the Gospels aren't the earliest writings we have. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, were written after Paul's letters. So Paul is writing to a, he's writing in, I don't know, the 40s and the 50s maybe, um, and the Gospels are being written down in the 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe 90s. The earliest generation, the earliest eyewitnesses are dying out, basically, and the church is saying, oh crap, you better write this stuff down. And they start to write it down. But Paul's letters are a really good window into what was happening in the earliest church, you know, 10, 20 years after Jesus, within living memory. So then you look, at, if you want to have a window into the earliest Christian imagination, you go to Paul's letters. And in a book of Philippians, if you have your Bibles, have a look. We're going to do a little Bible study here. In Philippians 2, and in fact, there are some Bibles that are going to be handed out. Look at that, as if by magic. In Philippians 2, so Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing to a, um, a group of Christians in the city of Philippi. And he's writing a letter to them And he quotes a hymn. And if you open up your Bibles and have a look, some some of you will see that in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, the text changes and it becomes a bit of a poem. It looks like a letter, a prose letter, and then it changes and it gets written like a poem. And he's quoting a hymn. And it's likely that he's, it seems that he's quoting something he never wrote. So he's putting into his letter something that, they already knew and that already existed. He's quoting a hymn. So this hymn is arguably one of the earliest writings we have or descriptions of Jesus, because Paul is the earliest writer and he's quoting something he did not write. So let's have a look at it. Each of you should look only, not only to your own interests, he says, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Just as an aside, common sense tells you, right, it, and this is, you find this all the time, common sense tells you Jesus was just a normal guy, he was just a good teacher, and over the years, people added, that his followers kind of added new stuff on top of the, of, the, of the human Jesus to make him a divine figure, right? That makes sense, we would think that. And you often see this as a critique against Christianity. It's like, Jesus is just a good guy, and it was like hundreds of years later that we developed this idea that he was divine. That makes sense. It's common sense. It goes against the evidence, though. Listen, you might not believe it. Like, if Richard Dawkins was here, he would not be convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. But the earliest Christians, the people who knew him within living memory, thought he was. The highest Christology, like the, the, quite often the, the, the highest views of Jesus as divine are the earliest writings we have. And arguably, some of the later texts in the New Testament make Jesus more human and less divine. So it's this strange thing that common sense tells you he's just a normal guy and we've made him into some superman. But the historical record is, you might not believe it, but the earliest record of him is that he was equal to God. And and that the earliest people who were around him said, oh, he's the guy that all things have been put under his feet and he rules the universe. Pretty big stuff. So, but what we don't notice now, 2,000 years later, is how political this hymn is. There are political phrases in this hymn that the earliest writers and listeners of this would have got straight away, and we've missed. So I just want to go into some of them now. The first one is, In verse 6, Jesus was in the very nature God who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And the word equality with God is isotheo, or it's a phrase, isotheo, and it means equal to God. And the, the, the Christian interpretation, like in 2,000 years' time of interpretation of this text... A lot of theologians will say, oh, this is a description of what it was like for the divine to become a human. Problem is, if they make that interpretation, they're ignoring the fact that Isotheo was the political term that Caesar used, the person used when they were gunning for Caesar, when they wanted to become Caesar. Caesar Augustus considered himself equal to God, so he ran to become ruler of the empire. Donald Trump considers himself Isotheo. So he runs to become leader of the free world, right? Isatheo is the phrase, if you, think in the, if you think about the Roman Empire, the more powerful a human you were, the more of a little god you were. You know? And to, to become Caesar was more than just to play party politics, it was to also, you would find a, a temple in your own name, you would hire priests who would sacrifice in your name, you would basically start a little cult in your name. Um, and some, some, some emperors took this more seriously than others. Some of them were just symbolic. Some of them actually said, I am a little god, and people thought they were crazy. And others just kind of symbolically talked about themselves as god. But the phrase was associated with public, powerful leadership. And if you did consider yourself Isotheo, the way you got, went about doing it was that you would do this thing here. It says, Jesus, who being in, equal to God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Verse 6. And some of your translations might have exploited. I don't know if you're reading along. I don't know if you have them on your phones, but some say exploited, or some say he didn't consider equality something to use to his own advantage. Right? They're all fine. Like These translations are fine. The problem is not that you can't trust your translation. The problem is is that we've kind of forgotten what it felt like to hear that word. And the word is harpagmon. And again, it's a technical political term. Has anyone ever been walking down the high street and somebody stops them and says, can you sign our petition? Right? Congratulations, you've just been harpagmoned. Harpagmon is the word you use when you are gathering your, your supporters in order to then push through your agenda. It's when you gather your resources in order to focus them to get what you want. So a politician who is running for, it doesn't matter if you're running to be leader of the free world or if you're running to be head of the PCC, what you do is you go to the PCC, if you support me when the time comes then I'll support you. Uh, are you with me? Are you with me? You gather your power base, right? It's politics. And that's harpagmon. You grasp to exploit for your own advantage. Now, it's worth pointing out that isotheo, equality with God, isn't the problem here. Actually, it only appears, it only appears one other, that phrase appears one other time in the whole New Testament. Does anybody have a guess when the phrase equal to God appears in the New Testament? Does anybody have a a guess? It appears in the Gospel of John when the Jewish leaders are accusing Jesus of blasphemy. And they say, he considers himself isotheo. From the Jewish point of view, to to be isotheo was blasphemous. From a Roman point of view, to be isotheo was a source of aspiration. And the New Testament says... Yeah, Jesus was Isotheo, but he didn't do it the way all the Romans do it. He didn't do it by exploiting and grasping. It wasn't a matter of exploiting and grasping. Instead, says Philippians, he made himself nothing. Verse 7. Um, some of your translations might have, which I think is a better translation, was emptied himself. And the word here is kenosis. This is important. This is is why I asked to have this, just so we could see these words. The word is kenosis. So Jesus didn't Jesus was equal, he was a public figure with lots of power, and he could have been a great leader, or he already was a great leader. But he didn't consider being a great leader a matter for grasping and exploiting to his own advantage. Instead, he kenosis himself. He emptied himself. What's going on here? Um, now we get to talk about the title of this talk. What do you do if you believe in black magic? What are you believing in if you practice black magic? What do you think? Curses. How are you going ab- Yes and how are you going about? If you, if you are actually practicing black magic, how are you going about, whether it works or not, what is it, what is it you're doing? I'm
3: trying to get power.
1: And how do you do it? Ask it from the devil. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting. You, don't, you do sort of ask it from the devil, but I think we kind of think that, some, sometimes we think black magicians worship the devil, or worship Satan. They don't, actually. And I've given this talk in front of somebody who stood up afterwards and said, I was a black magician. And you're absolutely right. Actually, you can see his, if you type, if you Google, a vicar plus Satanist plus tattoo. Have you guys seen that BBC documentary? Have you seen that? He was one of my students, that guy. Uh, when I used to work at St. Milaitis College. Actually, Owen's wife was also one of my students. I don't know if they were in the same thing. He was one of my students. And I was giving this lecture once, and he stood up. Oh, he put his hand up in the middle of the lecture. and He said, yeah, you're absolutely right. So I take it from, don't take it from me. I've never done it. I don't want to do that stuff. Take it from a real Satanist. He said, this is what you do. When you're practicing black magic, you are, you are trying to marshal the powers of the universe, and you focus them with your will, right? So what you're doing is you are grasping and gathering all the powers that you can find to dominate... To shape the world in your image, basically, to dominate with your will. And sometimes you curse, sometimes you use it to make people fall in love with you, sometimes you use it to get rich. But the point is you are marshalling the powers of the universe to focus them with your own will, to bend reality to your will. Whether it works or not, I don't care. But that's what they think they're doing. Um, actually, who remembers Robbie Williams? Do you remember that? Do you guys remember? This is, this is going back, isn't it? Do you remember this, the, the, the album he had where he puts his finger out? You guys, does some, can I just have a little nod that some people know this? I'm right. You could even call this up right now on your Google if you wanted to. I don't remember the name of the album. But the pop star Robbie Williams was into this kind of stuff. And what he did was he wrote, he was a member of Take That, um, and he went solo. And what he did was he, he learned that you could, what a spell was. And he wrote out, you're supposed to write out what you most want from the universe, and you keep writing it until it becomes an abstract scribble. And then you take that abstract scribble and you turn it into a symbol. And he wrote, I want to be rich, or I want my album to be success. And he wrote that and wrote that and wrote that until it became an abstract squiggle, and then he put that abstract squiggle onto his fingertip, and he pressed his fingertip against the camera of... That, and that became the album cover. He channeled his will, and he sent it out. That album is a black magic spell. He's trying to focus his will. And then you think of um, the, 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 the great black magician Alistair Crowley. Does anybody know who that is? Right. He was uh, one of the inspirations of the Satanic Bible. And Alistair Crowley, one of his, his great theme was Do what thou will is the whole of the law. There's no law in the universe except what you will. It's all about dominating others and the whole world with your will. What did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours be done. It's no accident that magic and Christianity have been opposed to each other from the start. Um, and you you even find this in the New Testament, that, like, the magicians are are very upset by Christians. (laughs) And it still happens today. But not my will, but yours be done. And it's not because of some weird science fiction fantasy spiritual warfare. It has to do with your will and how you're using it and whether you're dominating others. Jesus did not consider being equal to God a matter for grasping and dominating, but instead he put a limit on his will. This is what self-emptying means. It doesn't mean become a cringing worm or a doormat. So this is why I don't like the translation become nothing, because it's not we're tempted to think become nothing means become a cringing doormat. It doesn't mean that. It means well think about if you have a bathtub and you're filling it with water, the water quite naturally just flows to fill the space, right? What would happen if the water could stop itself halfway through? That's kenosis. It refuses to fill the space. It empties itself. Imagine a politician comes in. Well, imagine that we're all talking over the wine and we're all having our little conversations. And then a politician comes in. And he bursts, and it's always a he, isn't it? He bursts open the door and he walks in and his ego fills the room. And he expects all conversation to fall silent, right? And all eyes to be on him. And he maybe goes around the room and he shakes everyone's hand because aren't we so lucky to have shaken his hand and that kind of thing. You know what I mean? That person whose ego fills the room. Well, now imagine that we're all having our drinks with wine and cheese and we're all having our little conversations. I don't know, Owen, Rich walks in and he just stands at the back and he hears some chatter over that side and he listens to some over there and he goes over to the one groom and says, I overheard that you were talking about this, this, this topic. But Over here they're also talking about that. Would you like to come and meet them? So-and-so, you should meet so-and-so. You'd really like each other. And then he steps back, right? Now nobody would say that, that Rich, who does that, has become a cringing worm, Right? but he's practiced kenosis because what he's done is he's refused to allow his own ego and will to fill the room. Uh, The theologian Sarah Coakley writes about kenosis as, and she talks about it as gentle space making. It's when you allow, you create the space for other wills to happen. Right? You don't dominate other people. You, You deliberately put a limit on your own Personality and your own will to make room for other people. Gentle space making is what the first people who were around Jesus said that's what it felt like to be around him. It said he was a powerful leader, but he didn't dominate, instead, he was a gentle space maker for other will. You see how, like, it's a fascinating political commentary, this hymn. This was the kind of leader he was. And then at the end, the reward that Jesus gets is that by being that kind of leader, by, being, by saying this is what God looks like, that's where all the powers and principalities are put under his feet. And that's where Jesus becomes the one who sets the pattern for all life to the glory of God the Father, and every tongue confess. So, how does that relate to Kierkegaard? So, Kierkegaard was Søren Kierkegaard, was a Danish philosopher. He died in 1855. He never left Denmark. Well, he lived in Berlin for four, months, four, four weeks or something, but he never really left. Uh, and, when, and all his books, he was never translated into any other language except Danish until long after his death. So, in lots of ways, he wasn't... He was a bit of a failure in his life. He never saw the success that he has enjoyed later. But one of his things that he did do was that he has been called the father of existentialism. We're going to talk a little bit about what he did, but existentialism is just a fancy way of saying existence-ism. <laughs> Your existence matters. It's a, it's a way of thinking, it's not really a philosophy, it doesn't come with a whole system of thought so much, as it comes from a starting point, point. and the starting point is individual people matter. Your personhood is more important than, than the tribe that you were born into, or the culture that you were born into, or it's more important than your race, or your ethnicity, or your religion, right? All these things are part of your identity, but if you ever are in a world that says, your some most important thing about you is the nationality that you are, or the most important thing about you is what group you belong to. Kierkegaard says that's a lie. The most important thing about you is that you exist as a person, as an individual, and all these other things come later. And your existence comes with responsibilities. So existentialism is just a a way of saying your choices matter. You aren't just a cog in the machine. You aren't just a a part of the flow of history. You're an individual and you matter. And for Kierkegaard, you matter because you exist in the eye of God. And God sees only individuals. God doesn't see groups. We abstract people into groups because we can't deal with individuals in all their glory. We have to just abstract eventually into group membership. Because I can't deal with every single one of you in all your complicated wants and desires and histories and baggage and hopes and dreams. Right? Think how complicated a human is. Even you don't know yourself very well. How in the world are you going to know everybody else? We give up the limit. Humans give up trying to understand a person. And we have to abstract. Eventually, I have to say, all right, there's a lot of women in the room, so, and there's a lot of men in the room, so I'm going to abstract into men and women. And there's a lot of white people in the room, or there's a lot of English speakers in the room. Or, do you see what I mean? You start to abstract so that you can get a handle on these people. And so for somebody like Kierkegaard, he says, that represents... That represents, in a way, that uh, the limit of human ability. God doesn't need to do that because God can handle the complexity. There's no groups in God's eyes. There's only individuals. So He had. There's a few phrases I want to talk about quickly, and then we're going to. They're all have to do with the domination idea. One of His famous phrases is, "The crowd is untruth." Wherever you find a group of people, says Kierkegaard, who who are marching together in unison, shouting in one voice, you can be sure you found a lie. And even if what they're shouting about is true, the fact that they're all shouting about it together makes it a lie. And what he kind of means by that is, groups, we have this human tendency to think the more people who join our group, the more true it is, whatever we're shouting about, the more true it is. Right? And you think specifically about, like, Christianity, like, the more people who are, we call themselves Christian, the more confident we feel, the more true it must be. Or look at, look at the span of history, look at the 600 years that this church has been here. Christianity must be true because look at how many years we've been around, right? Or look how many buildings we have. Or look how many people call themselves Christians. So we, we try and we, we look at a number and we think the more you add to that number, the more true it must be. And one of the things Kierkegaard points out is the Incarnation, was just as hard to understand one second after it happened as it is 2,000 years after it happened. And the incarnation, God becoming a human, (laughs) if it happened, it's true whether anybody believes in it or not. And if it didn't happen, it doesn't matter how many people believe in it, it doesn't make it true, right? The truth of something is not connected. The truth of important things is not connected to the amount of people that believe in it or not. There are some truths, some minor truths, that are good. Democracy is an example. Things that don't really matter. We've just all agreed that green means go and red means stop. But if enough people got together over history and decided that red means go and green means stop, then that's what that would mean. And it's fine. It's just a, but that's a minor truth. But the really important ones to do with the meaning of life, the universe and everything, have nothing to do with how many people agree with it or not. The crowd... Is not a source of truth what is a source of truth subjectivity is truth says Kierkegaard subjectivity is truth now Kierkegaard comes in for a big kicking I don't know if in here um, have you ever heard of Francis Schaeffer he was an American evangelical um, and he was one of the vanguards of making Christians suspicious of Kierkegaard uh, for this phrase he's like oh This means that you're a moral subjectivist. You said truth is subjective, so that must mean that you're saying that you are generating truth from within yourself. Whatever I believe is true, right? That's what that sounds like. That's the root to all sorts of problems. Problem is, that is definitely not what Kierkegaard was saying. When Kierkegaard says subjectivity is truth, he's not saying you generate the truth from within yourself. What he says is, You are not an object, you are a subject, you are a person. And God is not an object, God is a subject, God is a person. When you want to know an object, you deliberately push it away from yourself. So if I want to know this whiteboard in all its fullness, I have to stand away from it so that I can see it in all its angles, right? I have to push it away, I have to consider it from all its different views. And the closer I get to the whiteboard, the less I can see behind it and on the other side, right? Because it's an object. But what about a person? If we think God is an object, then we're saying, the further I push you away, the more I'm going to know you. But if God is a person, then you can only know the person as a subject, as a relationship. So if I say, I'm not going to know Robin unless... I'm only going to know him from a distance. I'm never going to know who he is. But if I go out for a beer with him and we start emailing each other and we start talking and share our likes and dislikes and our hopes and fears and dreams and we become friends, then I'm going to know him. I'm going to know the truth, as much of the truth as a human being can know, of another human. But you can only know it in relationship, right? Truth is subjective. It's not objective. Truth with a capital T. Knowing... Who you are as a person, knowing the Incarnation, the Divine Person of God, is a matter for dealing with personhood, not objects. And it's because Christian culture has ignored this truth that the crowd, it's ignored the fact that the crowd is untruth, and it's ignored the fact that truth is subjective, or subjectivity, that Kierkegaard will say, Christendom has done away with Christianity. And he, he, he wrote this stuff at the end of his life. He waged a pretty intensive war against Christian culture. Um, and he published lots of things in the newspaper articles, and he named and shamed. There was a beloved old bishop who died. And um, imagine, I don't know, it's hard to imagine a beloved archbishop because archbishops never seem beloved by the end of their lives. Everybody's, some group is always mad at them. But Imagine, if you will, a beloved archbishop who dies. And then almost immediately after this man's funeral, Kierkegaard writes this stinging, by name, he says, this guy was responsible, this archbishop was responsible for the death of Christianity in this land and all this. And and he wrote this attack on Christendom. And as a result, Kierkegaard's attack on Christendom, there was a riot at his funeral when he died. Um, His supporters were mad that he was being buried in a church and his enemies were mad that he was being buried in a church. And there was a huge, and a whole generation of boys weren't called Soren as a result. Um, I mean, this guy caused, I can't imagine today any Christian philosopher causing that much upset. But Soren attacked Christian culture for Christian reasons. He said, Your Christendom, your official Christianity, or your cultural Christianity, your, are you a Christian? Oh, I'm white and I speak Danish, right? I'm a good civilized member of my European country so I must be Christian that attitude he said has destroyed Christianity it's done away with it because he says Christendom has believed the lie that Christianity must be true because of how many years it's survived how many people have joined how many buildings it owns right it's connected the truth of its cultural dominance with the truth of its proclamation. And it's also made this idea that Christianity is an objective truth that once you... and he says, you know, we have this idea that, oh, if you're not a Christian, it's because you haven't got enough information yet. We can argue you into it, or we can force you into it. We can dominate you. We can harpagmon you. We can, we can overwhelm you with a barrage of information and clever arguments and it will make you become a Christian. You'll have no choice but to logically capitulate or to succumb to peer pressure or whatever. Christendom has confused the truth of the relationship of Jesus with an objective fact of culture. And for Kierkegaard, he said, that's done away with it. And the reason is because you've never met Jesus as a person. This domination that has infected a lot of popular Christianity or Christendom Christianity is opposite to faith. The opposite of faith is not doubt for Kierkegaard. The opposite of faith was an act of the will. And until a human being is in the position where they get to choose not to believe in Jesus, uh, choose to be offended by him, unless they're in that position, they can't have faith. So let me explain. We tend to think, and Christendom often has this idea, was that um, the miracles and the miraculous. And is there a stained glass? Is there a oh look? up there is a Jesus. Have we got other ones? There's always a Jesus with the with the. Uh, is this a Jesus? Yeah. There's always a Jesus with kind of lightning bolts coming out of his head, right? And um, and there's always a, there's always images of Jesus in our stained glass windows and stuff. Of he's obviously God, right? He's just done a miracle. He's got lightning bolts coming out of his head. He's hovering six inches above everyone else. Um, he's obviously God. And Christendom has this idea as, oh, what idiots, all those people who met Jesus and, and didn't believe. It's the cause of much anti-Semitism. Oh, those silly Jews, if only they were too ignorant to notice. But we, Christians, we would notice, because <coughs> it's obvious, right? It's common sense. It's obvious that Jesus is God. Look at how many years we've been triumphantly successful. Look how many people have joined us. Look how many buildings we have. There's something wrong with your brain if you don't think Jesus is God, because it's obvious. Problem is, the New Testament is very... It's not embarrassed about Jesus' miracles at all. It's not embarrassed about Jesus' divinity. But it also tells you very clearly that at those points where Jesus was most obviously divine is precisely the points when people were most potentially offended at him. So all those points where John the Baptist comes, he sends his disciples to Jesus, and and they say, are you the one that we're expecting? And Jesus says, go back to John the Baptist and tell him, the blame are walking, the deaf are hearing, the blind are seeing. Go back to John the Baptist and tell him, blessed is the one who is not offended at me. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and the John's Gospel tells us that it was precisely at that point that everyone decided to conspire to kill him. Jesus casts a load of pigs, uh, demons out into a herd of pigs, and that's at that point that the villagers say, Go away from us, we don't want you here. At all the points, Jesus says, I am. He uses the, the word, he calls himself, he u- takes upon himself the name of Yahweh. The most overt description of Jesus as God. And it's precisely at those points that even his own disciples say, this teaching is too hard, we can't take it. At the points where Jesus is most divine are the points where people are most offended by him, or potentially offended. Miracles are not a proof for faith. And Kierkegaard points out that you can never force anyone into faith, because faith is not logic and reason and... It's not like a maths problem, 2 plus 2 always equals 4. Faith is a matter of the will. It's choosing not to be offended at this person that you've just seen do these things. It has nothing to do with whether you understand what he's doing. It's choosing not to be offended at what he's doing. Um, and so we have, for instance, well, the word in the belief in the New Testament is not about mental assent. Well, Um, We have this idea that belief means, you know, Jesus is walking around saying, believe in me, which we then think means articulate the Trinity without committing a heresy. Or uh, explain, explain the atonement theory without committing any problems at all, and then you can be one of my followers. No, belief in the New Testament is not about intellectually giving clever answers to complicated questions. Belief in the New Testament is more like allegiance or follow me. Jesus says, follow me quite often not believe in me, but it means the same thing. Just like if, if I said, believe in me, and I marched out the door, people who followed me are the ones who believe in me, right? Believe in me, I'm doing something new. And anybody who follows me has believed in me. And this is the way it operates in the New Testament. It has, Belief has a, has a geographical location. When Jesus says, who believes in me, he's, he also sort of means, who wants to be seen to be with me? who's willing to step out and follow me, right? And what the problem is, is when with Christendom, if we substitute belief for knowledge or logical assent to a proposition or membership in a triumphalistic group, if we say that's what belief is, then we have denied our people the possibility of being offended by Jesus which is the only place where true faith can happen. So Jesus says, there's a lot of hard sayings in the Bible, right? Um, Turn the other cheek. Don't kill your enemies. Sell all you have, give to the poor. Anyone who doesn't hate their mother and brother cannot be a follower of mine. Right, he uses quite hard, there's a lot of hard sayings in the Bible. In one book called *Practicing Christianity, Kierkegaard writes, what about this one? Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Don't normally think of that as a hard saying. Jesus says it in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And Kierkegaard's like, well, the only reason you don't think that's offensive is because you haven't put yourself as a person in front of another person. Because just think about it. Here's a guy, got bad breath a fish in his beard? You've just been walking with him on a dusty trail? And then he turns around and he says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you life in all its fullness. Right? And it's at that point, says Kierkegaard, like, you have a choice. Because all the crazy miracles you might have seen this guy do, it's, even if you'd seen the crazy miracles, you're still left with the fact that there's a guy in front of you with bad breath. There's a human in front of you who's just done, maybe he's done things you don't understand, but in the moment, as a person, he's inviting you to come to him as a relationship. He's not saying, understand this stuff. He's not saying, believe that I exist in an intellectual way. He's saying, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And at that moment, we, Kierkegaard says we all have this choice. Do we choose to f- come to him, or do we choose to turn away and be offended? And until Christendom, if Christendom can't get people to that point, they can't, nobody can have faith in Jesus. If Christendom persists in thinking that becoming a Christian means joining our group and adding to our numbers and being part of our successful culture as we march across the world, then we might have a big successful culture, but it will be filled with people who have never faced the possibility of potentially being offended by Jesus. And if they haven't faced that possibility, they don't have faith. And this is the kenosis idea. That... Christians, I'm imploring us as Christians here, those of us who are Christians in this room, to not substitute, to not do Harpagmon, to not think of getting people to join our group as a way of gathering together your power base in order to ram home your will on the world. We can't do that. We have to be people who bring somebody to Jesus and say, in a kenotic way, kenosis way, to step back, to make room for their will so that they can then say, be in front of Jesus and they could possibly say no. Like, Jesus never dominates. The, 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 the image we get, the earliest Christians who ever met, who knew Jesus, the one thing they said about him, the main thing they said about him was he was not dominating. He never overrode you. And even at the highest points of his divinity, you could look him in the face and you could say no. And it's because there's people who chose to say yes that Jesus loved faith. That's why it was so precious to him. And it had to do with he withdrew his will to make space for other people's will. And we should do the same. That's the end of my lecture.
0: Gonna give some questions. Sure. Thank you so much. I don't
1: even know how long I talked. I'm so sorry.
0: I don't either because my watch stopped at quarter past two today. So I've just been <laughs> intuiting time ever since. Really, um, I've got one to kick us off. Unless someone has, you know, really wants to jump in. Jeff, he's
3: gone for it. Go for it. Could we apply this teaching to the law? Uh, in a country where Christians are sufficiently numerous and yeah. well-organized to say or to press for the law to say this and to say that, yeah. uh, as it was once in this country, yeah. um, we banned homosexuality and in Ireland they made abortion on demand yeah. illegal, yeah. but they, neither of us, I think, have ever made illegal adultery, have we? Maybe in one or two countries in Europe, or laying up treasure on Earth. Yeah. And I wonder whether we should ever have done it. And this came to my hmm. mind when I had a prayer letter from Australia, where apparently at this moment, the LGBT community, as they call it, is putting the boot into a very weak church in every way it can, As they see it, they've been singled out to be banned or their parents, their, their forebears have,
1: but adulterers haven't. Yeah. So, I mean, you've just highlighted all the various inconsistencies that come when Christians try and, how do I put this? The idea of a Christian nation, historically, has been better for nations than it has been for Christianity. So, what happens is, Christians get a hold of the reins of power. They, they, they have a few red buttons that they love to press, and different Christian groups press different types of red buttons. And they say, oh, this is what it means to be a Christian. It means being anti-gay and being anti-abortion, or it might, some Christians say it's being pro-abortion and being pro-gay, or whatever. And they'll, they'll get their levers of power, and they'll force out people who disagree with them, and they'll change the laws, and they'll set the laws. And then people will assume... They'll create a culture where being a Christian means just being a pliant member of that civilization. And something happens to the Christianity. It, does, it, it, it gets kind of emptied out because Christianity now becomes assenting to a set of laws or being a member of a certain type of culture. And it's like, it's like a constant temptation for Christians. They constantly want to see their particular vision for Christianity stamped on to the to, to culture. And they can. it's very easy to explain to yourself, oh, this would be really good. Wouldn't it be so good if everybody went this way and did that way? But you kind of legislate for morality, which is just Christians acting like everybody else. Everybody does that. Every group on earth who has ever legislated for anything is legislating morality. They're, just, they're gathering their collected vision they're gathering enough votes and they're putting it through the system. Which is just the way politics works. But Christians have so closely tied their, the Christendom has so closely tied its Christianity to that process that now that Christians don't have the levers of power anymore, they don't have the reins, they now think, oh, Christianity is dead in this country. And they get all depressed and they think, we're not a Christian nation anymore because we don't have, because abortion is legal or something. Like, no, that those two things are not that you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus just because you have laws that some people think reflect the Ten Commandments or something. That's not what makes you a Christian. That's just an accident of history. And um and being a Christian, you're gonna being a Christ follower is gonna be the same problems you face as a Christ follower in in a communist country as if in some sort of free capitalist country or in a Christianized country or in a like, this essential task of not being offended by Jesus is the same for everybody everywhere. And there is a, uh, a sense that Christians are perhaps to agitate for good laws. So this isn't a kind of an argument saying just have nothing to do with the world. This isn't that kind of argument. But what it is saying is, don't think that you're having something to do with the world is the core beating heart of Christianity. Because that becomes an idol, Right? Um, so it's, it's being able to, can you hold with an open hand, can you Hark, Pagmon is all about grasping tightly, and again, don't grasp that was like one of the core, ground zero things that early Christians said, don't do this don't grasp tightly do it with an open hand, can we do that can you hold Christian way of thinking of the world with an open hand without um, demonizing people who don't quite follow you. And that doesn't mean have nothing to do with setting the laws. It just means don't think that the laws are your personal relationship. And there's a couple of hands. There's lots of hands.
4: Um, many faith groups, religions across the world, yeah. um, strikes me have have the situation where you're born into a faith. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and even the church as such, yeah, the Anglican church, for example. For sure. For sure. I couldn't, I've never understood infant baptism. <laughs> yeah. To this day, I've yeah. never understood it. I mean, I was born into a Catholic family, so I went through all the rituals, yeah, and, right. and I didn't come to faith until I was 25, properly. Yeah. And then I got full immersion baptism in a Baptist church. So yeah. I've never understood why we do that, right. why we don't, we're not able to make a yeah. decision for ourselves. You
1: know, and the, the phrase is, God has no grandchildren. So should, it, should infant baptism be ruled out? Um... So, Kierkegaard thought it should be. He, Kierkegaard thought infant baptism was definitely part of the problem because it was, it, was, it was fooling people into thinking they were Christian because they were now legal citizens of, a, of their nation. So being baptized is like the official route into citizenship in a lot of European countries. Um, I'm, I'm, more, I'm less worried about that kind of stuff than Kierkegaard. I, I do think that infant baptism can be ridiculous and can be a lie. Um, But I also, myself, having grown up in an evangelical world which believed in adult baptism, do you know what? When you're 16, you go and get baptized because that's just what everyone does. It's no different, actually. You know, a lot of adult baptisms, it's it's the peer pressure. Like, I I got baptized as a 16-year-old. I was succumbing to peer pressure. No different than if my parents were Anglicans and they got me baptized as a child. Like, I was just doing what everyone else did. You know, like the temptation is always to just go with the group because that's what... Why do we do this? We do this because that's what people like us do, right? That's always the temptation. We just do it because that's what people like us do. That's tradition. We just, you're just, your identity is, more, is less important than the group's identity, so you've got to do whatever it takes to just keep the group happy. And sometimes, in an Anglican church, that looks like infant baptism, and sometimes, in a Baptist church, it looks like 16-year-old teenagers getting baptised. So the, 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 the trick isn't to say, once we get this practice sorted out, then everything will be fine. It's to say, once we've recognized that eternal, constant temptation to substitute the, the, the peer pressure of the group from the personal relationship, that's where we need to, you know, it's, it's, that's the thing. Like, so baptism can stop people, for Kierkegaard, he said, baptism stops people from being in that position where they are faced with a sharp, sharp shock that this man claims to be God, and that you have to make a decision about that. Um, yeah, so definitely. I, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't believe in infant baptism myself, but I understand people who do. I don't think it's, you know, it's not something I'm going to excommunicate myself from <laughs> this church.
0: Um, jump in, Tim, because I'm not very good at kenosis yet, and I've got the mic. Okay. Um, <laughs> but the how do you um, balance? There's a number of people... Um, in church leadership and sort of part of the deal is kind of trying to get a group yeah. going yeah. And, and nurture a positive culture that people can be can grow up into and yeah. um, join in with and feel part of something and how do you balance the essential important to my mind um, stuff that's going on in, in nurturing a group and a, and a sort of Viable culture together, yeah. a counterculture, um, a peculiar culture, okay, so this alongside, is, them yeah, making room for people to, you know, honestly own something um, authentic for so themselves. In the midst got,
1: of he's got a really good. It's a, li- a kind of complicated, but he um, he he uses the language of the crowd or the herd. He often talks about the herd. So you get two different groups of people. So Kierkegaard is not saying anytime time people get together and agree it's bad. He's not anti-agreement. <coughs> but there's two different ways of getting together. And one way of getting together is the mob. And you think about like a mob or a crowd where you just give over, you, you give over your personality and your responsibility into the mob, right? Think about any time we get mob violence and you get people who do stuff they would never do by themselves, but because everyone's doing it and they can they can become anonymous and they can hide in the group. They'll throw a brick through a bank window or they'll beat up somebody. They'll do stuff as a mob that they would never do as an individual, right? They lose their humanity in the mob. So group's mob instinct is inhuman. Um, and that's different than a neighborhood. So Kierkegaard distinguishes between a neighborhood and a, and a mob. And the neighborhood is the, what you get when you get a group of people who are together in one area. But, you, but if you think about our neighborhood today, any neighborhood you're in, it will have people of all sorts of different shapes and sizes and backgrounds. And, and being in the same room with each other doesn't require that everybody looks the same and acts the same and speaks with the same voice. right? So can we, have, can we build church spaces or can we build groups which act more like neighbourhoods than like mobs. So that's what we're always looking for. It's like, because a lot of the, what the early Christians did is they were really aware about inhuman, uh, the language of powers and principalities is a whole other two-hour lecture. But in the New Testament, there's, you know, they have really good words for spiritual, um, they call it power and principalities. And in Ephesians 6, Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers and principalities of the air, Right. Oh, he's talking about demons, spiritual warfare, and all the charismatics. They love that stuff. Except that in Rome, Look, I'm a charismatic. I love that stuff. But in Romans 13, Paul says, everyone should be subject to the ruling authorities. Well, guess what? The same words he's used in Ephesians 6 to talk about demons, he's used in Ephesians 13 to talk about government. It's the same words. Uh, bureaucracy. Um, and there's a whole word study you could do on powers and principality language but the, the shorthand is it's faceless powers which influence our lives. Or inhuman powers. And sometimes it's time, history, future. Sometimes it's, um, sometimes it's inherited traditions. Jesus talks about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath had become an inhuman principality. Um, bureaucracy can be an inhuman. Think how bureaucracy is a faceless power which influences our life, right? Computer says no. And there's like, you're a real human being and you're standing in front of another real human being you're saying, please, just, can you treat me like a person? And the, no, I'm sorry, computer says no, right? That's a demonic principality there where we've, our humanity has been squashed for the sake of the institution. So what the earliest Christians are doing is like, they're saying, we've got to always be aware of that. Where have our systems grown inhuman and demonic? And how do we make them human and angelic again, Right? So I would say that for... So then Kierkegaard doesn't use the powers and principality language, but he's talking about the same thing. So he talks about a neighbourhood is where individuals are together without being asked to stop being individuals. And a mob is where persons join the herd, and the requirement of joining the herd is that you leave your humanity behind to become a faceless power which influences our life, right? So that's what I'd say to anybody who's helping to create these spaces. Can you create kenosis spaces which allow room for other people to pop up? Because that's, otherwise it's demonic. I'm going to let Owen be in charge of, there's lots of hands, but I'm going to let you be in charge of picking people.
2: Thanks for your lecture, Stephen. I wonder if you can help me out with the problem by indicating sort of where your political theology would go. So, like like you seem to be, I'm uncomfortable with the Christendom heritage, mm. and would say that something is lost of faith in that situation. But I've also been influenced by those who say, "Well, our modern, our modern liberalism mm-hmm. is—you um, know—you you talk political, you talk political theology. I want liberalism and the secular space and all that oh, is yeah. oh, so, right. so morally, so, intellectually you know, bankrupt. Yeah. So, so how do you, you know? I, I guess. Um, you know, John Milbank's in my head. He says, well, either nihilism or Christianity gets us out of this situation. Yeah. And, uh, and say, so I've been struggling. How, how do you then move beyond liberalism without returning to Christendom? Because I'm sort of stuck in between. I'd so like a third way. Okay.
1: Um, I mean, I'll talk to you. I'll give you a good reading list afterwards. But the headline would be, uh, to, see the, to stop thinking of the church. Like, we are political. We have a political imagination right now. The church, it's not the same as saying politics is one thing and the church is something else. The church is an alternative politics. Like, how we treat power, we just treat having power differently. It's not that we don't have power, it's that we say we use our power differently. Um, We have a vision, a shared collective vision as we meet as a group. We have a decision every time you pass the, I don't know if you go to an Anglican church, it doesn't matter what church you go to actually, like if you go to a church, any church, almost any church, even, even your most monocultural church will probably have people of different ages serving communion to each other, or you'll have people praying for each other, or you'll have um, p- different nationalities, or you'll have people, like different types of people will meet together in a church, which that, that in itself, that type of meeting, probably doesn't happen in any other comparable, at that time on a given Sunday morning. That probably isn't happening anywhere else. Um, So there's something even in the most mundane activities of the church, which if you have your eyes open to it, you go, oh, wait a second. We are living a different value than what most people around us are, and it's political. Or we make our spaces, like this building, you make your space open to the community. You've created third spaces, or you run a Wednesday morning parent-toddler morning, or you do a Thursday afternoon, retirement tea or something. Do you know what I mean? Like we Christians use our spaces and our buildings to provide social groups and networks for people that didn't exist before. And that's political. That demonstrates that Christians are having a different view of how they use their resources, who they think it's worth spending on, who they think it's worth inviting or not inviting to certain events. And a lot of what me and some other people and the kind of people I read and draw from are kind of trying to find ways to, to get Christians not to start being more political, but start to notice how political they already are, just by being normal Christians. Like You are living in an alternative society right now, um, and your values are different just by even choosing to come here tonight. You could have been choosing to sit alone by yourself watching television, which is also a political decision about where you think your values are and how your resources should be spent. So a lot of that is just trying to awaken in Christians the like, idea that we already are political. How do we f- keep forming ourselves? How do we stop what we got now from just becoming the way of the world? How do we keep it Christian, Christ-centered, Christ-like? You know? and, then, and it's a constant thing. And in fact, this is where the generation thing comes in, because Christianity is, has to reinvent itself every generation, because God doesn't have grandchildren. Because we don't think Christianity is an ethnicity that you are born into. We do think, I mean, that one of the best politics, I mean, it's, it's basically benign anarchy. If you're going to map Christianity onto any kind of politics, it kind of works out as some sort of benign anarchy. Because the Holy Spirit blows where he will. And Christians, you know, you often find Christians, when they're at their best, They'll dismantle them. Hey, a good example. You know Soul Survivor? Do you, who here has kind of had any attention? Does anybody pay attention to Soul Survivor? Do you know what they've done just recently? So Soul Survivor is this mega big festival, and they're really successful, and they have willingly decided to stop. They've been running for 19 years. It's not because of a moral failing. It's not because of shady business practices. It's not because anybody's burnt out. It's genuinely because... Mike Pilevacci, when he started he said, I will, I will listen to the Lord, and when he tells me to stop, I will. And he and the leadership team genuinely wait on the Lord, and they genuinely decided this was the year to stop. They have just decided to dismantle their principality, their institution, willingly, which is a really Christian way of thinking. That's what Christians do with our institutions. At our best, we just are open-handed with them. And we notice, oh, it hasn't served its purpose anymore. It did serve a purpose. Maybe it did at one time, but it's now not doing that anymore, so it's time to stop. You know? So if ever you find yourself in an institution and say, why are we doing this? Oh, we're doing it just because that's what, that's what we do here. Well, then now you know you're in a demonic realm. Right? So you always just have to pay attention to that. If you can't give a really good reason, then you can't. It's not angelic. Can I um,
5: yeah. speak out on behalf of community? Okay. Um, it seems to me, Carpart um, very famously said, "You have to go through Kierkegaard, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have to go
3: through. Yeah, yeah. Kierkegaard. You shouldn't stay there. Why?
5: Yeah. Oh, you've got to go to the other side. And yeah. I was a massive fan of Kierkegaard growing up, and still am in many ways. Mm. But I remember with my college tutor explaining how I was reading Kierkegaard and discussing my relationship with a girl I was courting at that point. And he said, maybe Kierkegaard's not exactly the right person (laughs) to be reading at this point. Because for those of you who don't know, has it already been explained? He dumped his his girlfriend. His his relationship with Regina Olson, his fiancee, is a catastrophe, which kind of runs and has reverberations through the whole of his life. Anyway. Um, it seems to me that the heart of the gospel is not my relationship with Jesus. Right. It is Christ and what he's right. done for me right. and my yeah. participation. So you're absolutely right. The heart well, is not me.
1: The heart is not me. You're absolutely right. The heart is always Jesus. Um, you're absolutely right. So it's not my relationship that's the heart of Christianity. Uh, what, but, what we can't say is you can't be ha- said to have faith in Jesus if you have not met Jesus who he really is. And who he really is, is the guy who says, come to me all who are weary.
5: This is all true, right? but it does seem to feed into Western individualism. Now I admit it doesn't feed into sort of American style civic religion in which, as it were, the wishes of of the American identity and their religiousness sort of are are smoothed into one another as if there was no difference. Absolutely not. And the the seriousness of Kierkegaard I think is, is very important even the 200 pages he spends discussing whether it's appropriate to go for a walk in the deer park on a Sunday afternoon. But at the same time, a lot of the emphasis that's come through modern theology about the doctrine of Trinity is to say that as I am defined as a person by my relationships, by my relationship with God, with other people, and so forth. So it's not me as a separate little atom uh, making decisions over against that. Now no. this may be unfair, it's certainly the way maybe Schaefer goes, which with, with whose uh, yeah. denunciation by you I completely agree, but it seems to me that if we think in terms of the Trinity as a community of persons who exist in and through their relationships to one another and through love, This is a more positive way of looking forward in the last resort than a sort of heroic, triumphant um, individualism that stands against
1: um, all the
5: corruptions of external culture.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, historically, Kierkegaard has been taken up by existentialists to create a radical individualism. Um, I would say that the... The Kierkegaard's influence, the Kierkegaardian influence, has been almost wholly by the atheist Kierkegaardians. And they deliberately stop thinking about the fact that you exist as an individual before God. And for a lot of existentialists, it was, you exist as an individual, full stop. There's no truth but what you can generate, and if you, it's based on your decision. So there is a school of existentialism, which is like, you exist and you come with responsibilities, you have to make choices. And there is no God, it's just nihilism, so your choices are all that matter. And of course that has led to all sorts of problems. And I would just say, what's bad about existentialism can be fixed by what's good about Kierkegaard, which is a sense of the individual as somebody who is um, perpetually in a state of humility, of not trying to control everything. So it's, it's ironic that the atheist existentialists end with saying, All that's left is me, and I have to try and control everything and put my stamp of identity on the universe. Whereas Kierkegaard is the opposite. He's like, once you realize that you exist before God, you realize that your existence comes with an absolute humility, that you don't know anything, and that that belief and your identity has nothing to do with how well you control stuff, and especially how you control other people. So, yeah, I mean, we could have a good long talk afterwards about all this, but... I there's have, um,
0: time for two, two more, as long as they're relatively short questions, we'll go, go here
1: first. Um, so like one of
6: the really strong points which comes out of like Hickard's work is like his refusal to collapse um, the religious life into the ethical life. Yeah. As it, it, if we define the ethical life as kind of a set of like social customs and kind of shared yeah. kind of obligations, um, so in like Fear and Trembling he kind of points out that the decision that Abraham makes is like fundamentally unethical, it would go against all of the shared yeah. customs we would have as a society. Um, but one of like my kind of struggles with Kierkegaard's philosophy comes out of the idea that if we truly do eschew the nature of the collective, if we truly take take at face value his idea that subjectivity is truth, then doesn't it reduce Christianity to a kind of like mysticism? Um, and, it, and doesn't that lend to itself to a sort of a political worldview? And that's definitely something which comes out of Kierkegaard's own journals. It, when he's writing in the, during the 1848 revolution in Germany, he says things like, he's very kind of disparaging about the communists and he says, well, yeah. they're just going to come and take, you know, attack anyone who has the, the merest possessions. Which, um, which they did. He didn't like democracy either. No, no, he didn't like democracy either. But just, I just think if we, there are political demands made in Christ te- Christ's teachings, such as the call to social justice, which might oblige us to think of ourselves as collective actors. Um, and I just wondered whether Kierkegaard's tend- well, tendency towards sort of personal mysticism might go against that.
1: I mean, again, we could obviously have a good conversation, a longer conversation after. Um, it it isn't that it isn't that Kierkegaard is offering. Okay. There is a malignant form of collectivism. There's a malignant form of identity which masquerades as the real thing. So, so and he, what he's always trying to get Christians to do is be alert to the malignant form. So he's not saying it's bad when Christians agree about something. What he's saying is it's bad when people, or it's not bad, it's bad when people think that their core identity is that they agreed or their core identity is their nationality. So he's not saying, nationality is evil and must be destroyed and we all exist as individuals, like billiard balls bumping into each other. He's not saying that. What he's saying is always be alert to the temptation that your nationality or your group identity or your political ideology holds because it always wants to claim more than it deserves. So like party politics is a really good example. Like um, party politics, like ideological fights, like they really want to claim your full allegiance. right? Um, and it's certainly true in party politics. I've got a friend, he's a, um, he, works for the, he works for the conservative government right now, he works in number 10, but he's a Christian and he has genuine, so he's a conservative, you know, but he has genuine friendships and he'll meet with Labour Party members or, you know, he, he'll have cross-party friendships that are genuine and he has cohorts in the Conservative Party who are suspicious of him right? They're like, you shouldn't be, why are you mixing with them? They're the enemy, right? And he's like, no, well, they're not the enemy. He believes in his party politics, he just has refused to allow his party politics to dominate his whole identity. He's like, no, I, I have a different allegiance. I have a higher allegiance. I, for a time, I can be a conservative, but when it really comes down to it, I'm going to meet to pray with that Labour guy, because we're both Christians, right? So this is kind of an example of, you, you, you can totally be a Christian and a socialist or a Christian and a capitalist, like you can do it, and if you're a Christian, you then realize you're always going to be a grit in the wheels of that party ideology, because there will always come a point, no matter what politics you're part of, no matter what patriotism you have, there'll always be a point, as a Christian, where you're going to be a grit in the wheels. And eventually, the group that you're a part of is going to say, you can't, you're not giving us your full allegiance so you can't be a member of this group anymore. And that's the, that's the kind of idolatry that Kierkegaard is warning us against. So he's not saying, a Kierkegaardian doesn't say you, you'll never have anything to do with the world and you're always going to be a rampant individualist who has no collective social justice or anything like that. What they're saying is any group you join will eventually, or the temptation will always be, the trajectory is that the group will start to claim that its membership is your fundamental identity. And it's not. It might be important. So, my being Canadian is important because it's shaped my who I am. But it's not my core fundamental identity. Um, if Jesus... Ex- if, if God exists, which we can't prove, <laughs> but if God exists, uh, and if, G- if God looks anything like Jesus, which is what Christians want to say he does, then God exists as a person, then everything you do has to be described with constant reference to jesus cuz jesus is the center of the universe all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that has been made so as a christian i'm like okay can i constantly describe everything i do with constant reference to jesus and if i can't do it then i'm somehow involved in idolatry so that statement makes me make me fundamentally any group I join will be suspicious of me. And it doesn't mean that I think those groups are terrible. It just means I refuse to give them, make them the center of my, of my emotions and will and intellect, right?
0: Let's go for the, uh, the last one. Robin, have you still got a question? Yes,
4: sort of. Um, so I was thinking about what you said about God doesn't see groups, he sees individuals. And I was wondering, so I immediately think, well, of course, in the Bible that's not true. Okay. particularly in relation to the election of Israel, yeah. which runs all the way through, probably through every book of the, New, the Old and New Testament. But, but so I was thinking, so how would Kierkegaard mm. take yeah, this right. into account? How would he nuance his
1: account to say actually God does see groups? It? Well, he's no fundamentalist. Kierkegaard is very funny because he says, where did this rot start? Where did all this rot of people confusing group identity with their, with their Christianity? Where did this all come from? And did it come from the Roman Catholics? Did it come from Constantine? It's like, no, it came in Acts when 5,000 were added to their number in one day. <laughs> you know, I mean, he and he, and because for him, he was like, surely there was at least one person in that crowd that was just looking around going, well, if everyone else is doing it, I guess I might as well too. Um, so, so, I mean, he wasn't, Kierkegaard was making statements about um, identity and stuff that wasn't lining up with the, even particularly with the details of the New Testament. Um, but the, uh, the real question is, how do you deal with things like the election of Israel? Well, I mean, you do have to look at how Jesus, what he does, how Jesus talks about these things. So he's always calling people out of their groups, actually. He's always reforming groups around him. So even Israel becomes about him now. So like the Passover, you know, becomes about him. Um, the temple, every time he makes a statement about the temple, the temple is the great repository of the hopes and dreams of the Jewish race and Jesus says, it's about me now, it's my body Um, and every time he heals people he's making a comment about Israel he's like saying, oh you used to think that the temple was where you had to be purified and healed and and be made right well, every time Jesus healed he was making a statement and he said it happens around me now so I do feel like there is a reframing even of even of group language, which God can make sons of Abraham out of these rocks, right? There is a kind of a comment, even in the New Testament, about the way people were seeing their group identity. And you even see it, like in the rest of the New Testament, you see it in Galatians, you see it in um, Colossians, you see, like, some of the earliest debates in the Christian church were precisely about Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians meeting together and having to reform a new identity. And the Apostle Paul basically writing to Jewish people saying, just because you're born Jewish doesn't make you any special. And then saying to Gentiles, just because you're born Gentile doesn't make you special. There's something else going on here. So you see a kind of a dismantling of old group identities and a reforming. Even in the New Testament. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Well, not at this reconfiguring. Yeah, so I think there's something going on that's, that's... like that, yeah. but not a negation of group identity, not at all, not even in Paul, not, not anywhere no, in and the it's new a Testament. reforming of a new group. Yeah, and, and Paul yeah. And, the, and Acts and all of the New Testament writers are quite affirmative of group identity still, and even different groups within the Eccles, the church, uh, affirming the distinct identities of different groups and just saying that they're one body in Christ.
1: Yeah, but then there's the, even those interesting things about like even the most you know we're all one body, but even the most um, disdainful part we treat with special honor. And I mean, there's a lot of attention of like make sure your group the whole stuff about the whole teaching about the past, the the, 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 the Eucharist meal. You you're, you're meeting as a church for a Eucharist meal, which is great. But the rich people are bringing their food, and then the poor people don't have enough to eat. And so like even your your communion meal is demonstrating that you're you're you haven't become one yet. You know. Um, there's always a kind of a sense of like, we got to form a group that pays attention to, every, to the, everybody in it. Like We have an unhealthy group right now. How do we make it a healthy group? So I guess that's what I'm trying to find in that in somebody like Kierkegaard, who really, more even than the Apostle Paul, <laughs> Kierkegaard spent a lot of attention on what is a group, what, and what is our individual relationship to that group, when do groups go bad, when do groups go good, and Kierkegaard is writing 1,800 years after Paul, but he's in a trajectory that I think was being set in the early church, in those texts, of how do we, how do we come out of our old groups and how do we start new ones that aren't going to become corrupt? How, Jesus says, you know, don't lord, it over, don't lord your power over others the way the Gentiles do. The Philippians thing is all about re, reforming. If you read Philippians, it's all within the context of, of group dynamics and not, people not fighting with each other, you know? So a lot of this stuff is all about like how do we shape ourselves as a, as a community in a way that doesn't look like the way other people shape themselves. So even the group language, group identity is, is being dismantled in a certain way. I don't know. It's not individualistic. That's true.
0: Stephen, thank you so much. Let's give this guy uh, another clap. That yeah,
1: was very really fun. Yeah, <laughs>
0: I um, certainly wouldn't want to have been on the end of all of those questions. If you didn't follow everything this evening, don't worry. You're in good company with me. At least you don't have to pray at the back of it. Um, But let's pray together. At least you don't have to lead the prayers. You do have to pray. You don't have to pray. There's no domination. uh, (laughs) This is space in which you may pray. (laughs) That's good. So thank you, Lord God, for this gift of life and existence. Thank you for the dignity of responsibility. And in the midst of the realities of power, influence, and all that, we pray that we might be people after your heart, your style, your generosity, and your gentleness. So come and Lead us on, we pray. In
6: Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.